Amen. How you doing this morning, ARC? Mm. How y'all doing this morning? Amen. Somebody say you got us thinking about our morning and crying. It's, it's kind of hard to say good real loud, but praise God Almighty. We are gathered together again to worship him and to praise his name. If you're visiting with us this morning, let me add my word of welcome. Uh, I'm Pastor T. I'm one of the pastors along with Pastor Matt and Pastor Jeremy. Has the privilege of serving this church family and glad that you're here. We can't think of any place we would rather you be than to be worshiping the Lord with us. Uh, let me tell you why we exist. We exist really for one reason, to bring glory to God by making disciples of Jesus Christ right here in the four corners of the block of Southeast D.C., all the way to the four corners of the globe. And we want to bear witness to Christ, his love for us, his sacrifice for us, his resurrection from the dead, and the hope that sinners have of forgiveness in him. And we want to, as we bear witness to that message, we also want to bear witness in mercy. Uh, we want to serve our neighbors and our friends, Christian and non-Christian, with the mercy that we have also received from Christ himself. And not only that, we want to grow as a church. We want to mature in the things of Christ and the things of God. So if you're visiting with us, what, one of the things we want you to know, even though the preacher has on a suit, he ain't perfect. He ain't polished. He ain't done. We're broken people in need of a healing Savior. And praise God, Jesus is one. And so if you got some broken things in your life, welcome. We're glad you're here. You can join it to our brokenness, and we can seek the Lord's healing together. All right? Uh, so we welcome you here. We, we pray that you hear the message that has called us into being, and we pray that you taste the mercy that we ourselves have received. Now, if you're visiting with us this morning, we like to preach the Bible, and we like to keep our heads in the book. So if you brought your Bibles, you'll be helped to turn with us to 1 Timothy chapter 2. If you've come this morning and you don't have a Bible, then just raise your hands. These, these young lads in the aisle will be happy to, to bring you a Bible to borrow this morning. And uh, we want that to be our gift to you. If you don't have a Bible at home, um, or if your Bible is old and worn out, first of all, praise God, every Bible ought to be old and worn out. Um, but if your Bible's old and worn out, you're losing pages and need a new one, take that one. Let that be our gift to you. We want you to, to have God's Word and to share it. Now, if, you, if you're a member of this church and you raise your hand to, bring a, to get a Bible, <laughs> to be a member of this church, and you got Bibles at home, and you raise your hand to get a Bible, next week bring your Bible, all right? You just got a Bible a visitor needed, all right? Okay, that's my reproof for this morning. Okay, here we go. So if you visit with us this morning, we are in a sermon series through our statement of faith. Our statement of faith is called the London Baptist Confession. It was written in 1689. It's defined um, how it is we Baptists share a lot in common with other Christians denominations, but it also defines some things that are distinct about Baptists at a couple of points. Uh, and as a new church, what we want to do is sort of get our feet deep into the soil of our basic beliefs. And so if you're new to us this morning, you want to sort of know who we are, you've come at a perfect time as we talk about what it is we believe. And this morning, we are thinking about what our statement of faith teaches about worship, how we are to worship, who we're to worship, and in what heart we are to worship. And to do that, we want to consider 1 Timothy chapter 2. Now, before I read the text and get into the Word, uh, I, want to, I, want to, I meant to do this before I got started. Uh, join with me in giving God praise uh, for the Williamses, for Joseph and Erica and their new baby girl. 
baby girl. Praise God. Amen. 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 Praise God. I love that the Lord is adding to our number with all these little babies, man. And so uh, do encourage them and pray for them and bless them uh, as they rejoice in God's favor. So we're thinking about how we worship this morning. And we're thinking about what's at the heart of worship this morning. How many of you have seen the movie War Room? Praise God. How many of you were encouraged by that movie? And, and how many of you were convicted? <laughs> so, so I left incredibly encouraged and incredibly convicted about my prayer life, okay? And this morning, what we're going to see is that the heart of Christian worship is prayer. That, that's the beginning of it. That's the power of it. Uh, that's, the, that's the inescapable activity in Christian worship is, is prayer. And so I realized, even watching this movie and preparing the sermon, looking at this text, this is one of those subjects like evangelism where Christians can go away mightily discouraged mightily guilty. So let me just start by being the first one to confess that my prayer life isn't what I want it to be. Some people are prayer warriors. I'm in a season of life right now where I'm warring to pray. I'm just finding it hard to pray and to pray well and to pray faithfully and to feel like um, there's, there's sweetness in my prayer life. So I just want you to know I'm a fellow traveler on this. But as we look at God's word, let's let him convict us if that's what he has for us. Let's let him encourage us, if that's what he has for us. Let's let him help us. I know he has that for us. So 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 15. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. I was a poor I am telling the truth. I am not lying of the in faith and truth. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. That a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a trans. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, before we rush to all your questions about women being saved through childbearing and being silent in the church. Let's recognize he said some stuff for that, okay? <laughs> Three points this morning if you're taking notes. One, the most important and urgent act of worship is prayer. The most important and urgent act of worship is prayer. Verse 
Number two, pleasing worship and pleasing prayer require pure hearts. And pleasing prayer require pure hearts. We'll see that in verses 8 to 10. And then pleasing it requires proper order. Requires proper order. We'll see that in verses 11 through 15. And as we think about God's word this morning, I pray that he would encourage in prayer and by our prayer affect Let's start with that first point. The most important and urgent act of worship is prayer. See the priority there beginning in verse 1. Paul says, first of all then. Now he's not saying first of all in the sense of he's about to go through a list. He's saying first in importance. First of all then, I urge. Notice now that strong word urging. He's encouraging as aggressively as he can to do what? I urge. That supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are high, high positions. You see there the, the priority of prayer, first of all, but then you see the people we pray for. All people. All people. All kinds of people. Encouraging all kinds of prayer for all kinds of people. Everything from request to thanksgiving, from asking God for what we need or interceding with God on behalf of other people to giving God thanks for the things he's already done and for who he is. All kinds of prayer, notice, for all kinds of people. And Paul specifies here those in authority, kings and those who have high positions. Why does he specify them? Isn't it because if there's anybody that we are tempted to not pray for, it's people who have authority? We have this sinful, negative reaction to people in authority very often. So if I were just to ask you, how many of you, though commanded in the Scripture, pray for President Obama this morning? No doubt some people go, I don't know if I want to pray for that rascal. Or forget political leaders, people who are in high position in your workplace. You're a boss who just gave you an assignment that you didn't particularly want. And it in a way that you didn't particularly like. Have you prayed for the people in high positions in your workplace? Maybe you're a teenager or in middle childhood, and you're struggling with your parents right now, you, you just feel like your parents are your greatest enemies. They don't let you do this. They don't let you do that. Did you pray for your parents this morning? College students, high school students, middle school students, who's the person in high position in your school? The chancellor, the president, the principal? Did you pray for them? It's almost as if God in his word here is sort of calling us out about our attitude toward authority and people in authority and whether or not our heart toward them in prayer is what it ought to be. He says, I want you to pray for all kinds of people. And then God says, oh, by the way, I want you to pray for those who are in high position and authority. Why? We see the priority. This is urgent. First of all, we see the people we're to pray for. Notice number three, the purposes of prayer. First, there's peace. 
You see that there in verse 2? That we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. How many of us live in communities or how many of us live in neighborhoods or how many of us view our entire country as a place that's just racked with conflict? where we're arguing about all kinds of things or where there's violence in homes and in neighborhoods or where there's strife in marriages. How many of us can recognize that the world right now is not a place marked by peace and quiet? But the first purpose we're given for prayer in our public worship is that God might bless our land with peace and quiet. And in that peace and quiet, as Christian people known by his name, desiring to worship, we might then be godly and dignified in every way. There's some some sense in which our Christian lives flourish when God is pleased to bless our communities and our land with peace. That's not hard to understand, is it? We're gathered here this morning freely to praise God and to worship him. And nobody's coming in here to lock us up. Nobody's coming in here to harass us physically and to, to threaten our lives, but, but Syria, Iraq, China. How many of our brothers and sisters in Christ in other lands risk their very lives and pay dearly to do what we sometimes take for granted? And so we pray for them, and we pray for rulers and authorities in other lands too, so that as they are blessed by God and ordered by God, it rolls down into the life of his church as peace and quiet and the opportunity to pursue godliness and dignity or respectable living in every way. Have you been thinking that your spiritual progress is connected to whether or not or how you pray for your leaders? This text says it is. It says one reason that we are to pray all kinds of prayer for all kinds of people, particularly those in high positions, is so that we might know this peace. But not only this peace, but so we also experience the purity of prayer itself. You see what Paul says there in verse 3? Very simply, this is good. This kind of prayer for people of all kinds which leads to peace and quiet, it's good. It's a wholesome thing. It's a pure thing. It's a thing that's worth doing all on its own. To, to come to the Lord, if we are known by his name, if we know him through Christ, and to, and to seek his face, and to, and to petition him, and to make requests, and to send up thanksgiving, that, that very activity, it's good. It's right, it's clean, it's pure. And we experience that sometimes even in the act of praying, don't we? How many of us have have gone to our knees by our bedside at bedtime and, and we start to pray and pretty soon we notice there's more distance between each word in our prayer and we catch ourselves and, you know, we, we wake ourselves and, and that bothers us. Why? It's not worthy of the goodness of prayer itself, is it? Or how many of us are attempting to pray and we're praying and our thoughts are running all over the place even to things that we would rather our thoughts not go to? And doesn't it it trouble the soul? 
Why? Because prayer is good. It's a clean, good activity, and it's worthy of doing for that very purpose. Experience the goodness of God in the, in the purity of interacting with him. But not only that, there's a third purpose that we are to pray this way, all kinds of prayer for all kinds of people. You see it there in verse 3 also because it's pleasing to God. It gives peace, it's pure, and it's pleasing in the sight of God. How many of us from time to time have wondered, how can I please God? How, how, can, I, how can I bring, as it were, metaphorically, a, a smile to God's face? How can I, how can I know that he is happy with me and, and that how I'm living is in some way pleasing to him? Well, the Bible tells us here, pray. And isn't that a wonderful encouragement to pray? However feeble our prayers are, however weak our prayers are, however distracted our prayers are, God is going, oh, great. I get to meet with you now. I get to talk with you now. Oh, this is good. Go ahead and pray. Ask me. Ask me anything. Ask me anything according to my son's name. And whatever you ask, you have it. God says, come boldly. Come boldly. This is the throne of grace. You can get mercy here. Ask what you wish to ask. And, and he's pleased. He's breaking over us in song. There's a joy that erupts in the heart of God as God's people pray. What an encouragement to prayer. And how unlike my heart so many times where I hit my knees and I'm thinking, I got to do this. This is my duty. I need to pray because I'm a pastor. This person's hurting and, and I want the best for them, but I'm, I'm going to pray as if God wasn't pleased. Having forgotten that he's happy, that he's glad. And when his children bend their knee, he opens his heart. And so we pray because it brings peace, and we pray because it's pure, and we pray this way because it pleases our God. Did you notice how God is described in this text? God, our Savior. And so Paul begins to bleed over into the fourth purpose of prayer here, and that is that people who are lost would be saved. We, we pray for the salvation of others. We pray to God in hopes that, that he would save others. Look at the verse there, verse 3. This is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. It's like God is looking at us in our prayer closet and he's saying, come, come pray. This is great. I get to meet with you. I'm happy about this. Now ask me to save somebody. Ask me to save somebody. Ask me about your cousin. Ask me about your son. Ask me about your neighbor. Ask me about that one who's been speaking hard words to you because of the gospel. Ask me to save him. Watch me. Watch me. Watch me. This is remarkable. But what this text means is that Christians change the world on their knees. From the peace and quiet of our neighborhoods to the experience of the goodness of God who is pleased with us in prayer to the salvation of lost people on our block to the end of the globe, Christians change the world in prayer. On our knees, we find power. Pleading with God, we find this pleasure. Giving him thanks, he, he rains down yet, yet more blessings. 
Oh my God, how wonderful is prayer. And this is the first and most essential act of worship, not preaching, not doing what I'm doing with you right now. Paul will in chapter 4 say, say, preach, be devoted to the public reading of the Scripture and the preaching of the Scripture. But do you notice in this long section from chapter 2 to chapter 5 where he's talking about the public worship of God's church? First of all, then, I urge you to pray. That's what gives preaching its power, not the eloquence of the preacher, not the cleverness of the preacher. Prayer is the pleading with God to own his word, invested with power, and to grip the hearts of men and change them. Pray. It's our priority. There are people for us to consider, and, and these purposes of peace and purity and pleasing God and the salvation of the lost. And you see now the premise of prayer? He continues in verses 3 to 6. This is good and is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Verse 5, the premise. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and in truth. Why should we make prayer for others a priority and pray with these purposes in mind? Verses 5 and 6. For there is one God. And there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is a testimony given at the proper time. We pray to God and are only enabled to pray to God. And our prayers are only pleasing to God because somebody stands between us and God. That's what that word mediator means. We, we had been at war with God. We had been hostile toward God. We had, in our sin, been going in our own way, the Bible tells us. That's the nature of sin. It's not simply that there are acts that we do that displease God. No, there's a disposition in us. There's a, there's a bent in us. We are turned away from God hostile. We give him the cold shoulder, and we're going in our own way. And God is angry with sinners. He is pledged in his holiness and his righteousness that he will judge sinners eternally, agonizingly. And that judgment will be right. Even the sinner in judgment will be forced to say, God is right for judging me. There'll be no dispute about it anywhere in the universe that this holy God who does all things well, who is love and who is pure and who is good, was right to judge the creatures that he made but who rebelled against him. And we would die at war against God and with God angry with us, unreconciled to God, except that there was one man 
Christ Jesus, the Son of God, who took upon himself human flesh and came into the world to make peace between God and man. That's his role as mediator. He comes and he takes the sinner by his hand and he brings him back to God and he joins him hand to hand with God. How does he do that? Notice what the text says. Who gave his life as a ransom for all. The cost of peace between a holy God and sinful man was the life of the Son of God. Peace doesn't come as a result of what we do. Reconciliation isn't accomplished by our promises and our performances. We, we don't make our way back to God in a series of good deeds stacked on top of each other so that we might mount a staircase to heaven. No, no, we are brought to God only by the Son of God, who is the mediator, who has stood in between us and God and settled the warfare. He does that by giving himself as a ransom as the purchase price to buy us back from our slavery and captivity to sin and to bring us freely into God's family and kingdom. He obeys God perfectly so that all of our failures now are, are, are washed over by his righteousness. And he dies on the cross suffering the punishment of God. The judgment that we deserve is now being paid in the Son of God, by the Son of God. He becomes our sin bearer and our atonement. He satisfies God's anger so that God is no longer angry with those who believe in Christ. It's because Jesus has done what he has done that we're able to pray. And our prayer pleases God. And there's power in our prayer. There's one mediator, beloved, between God and man. Now maybe you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian and you've heard some of these things before or maybe some of these things are fuzzy or, or maybe you're sort of looking at me sort of thinking, really only one mediator? Who else you know promised to go between you and God and to make peace with you? Muhammad did not. Buddha did not. The, the, the sort of teachings of reincarnation and getting it better in the next life and a cycle of lives until you, you sort of reach nirvana. No, I won't get you there. It's appointed to man to live and die once. And after that is the judgment. And there at the, at the judgment is the Son of God who will either on that day of judgment, beloved, be for you the one who rescues you from the judgment or be for you the one who testifies against you because you chose your sin rather than his salvation. Only one stands between sinners and God. Only one can bring us to God. That one is Jesus. He claimed it in his earthly life and he proved it in his resurrection. Our plea with you, our prayer for you, is that you would believe in this Jesus. That you would turn from your sins. Confess them to God. God already knows. Confess them. Admit them. Acknowledge them as sins. 
and, and that you would confess that because of your sins, you, you know you deserve God's judgment, right? If, 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 there, if the universe is righteous, if the universe is moral, if all things are going to be put to right, doesn't that include us and our sins? Ought you to be judged for what you've done wrong? Can you even count the number of things you've done wrong before God? If God counts our sins against us, who could stand? God in his matchless grace says, I'll wash your sins away. I will wipe the record clean. And I will treat you as if you had never sinned. But you must turn from your sin and believe in my son. And if you're here this morning, it is the only way to be reconciled to God, to truly know him, to truly please him and worship. Trust him. Come to him. Believe in him. And live. And live. And live. Christian, all of our worship is through Christ. It's offered in his name. It's only acceptable because of his blood. And because of his blood, it's always acceptable. It's always viewed in the gracious eyes of God who is pleased with us when we pray. That's how our statement of faith puts this. I think it it's almost as if the writers in 1689 were looking at 1 Timothy chapter 2 and putting it in their own words. Only, only they sort of start with God and then come to prayer. You see that there in the statement of faith is printed in your bulletin. That paragraph 1 begins with the light of nature shows that there is a God who has dominion and sovereignty over all. He is just and good and does good to all. And then it comes to worship. Because he is like that, he is therefore to be feared or reverenced, loved, praised, invoked, trusted, and served by men with all their heart and soul and strength. Well, the only acceptable way of worshiping the true God is appointed by himself in accordance with his own will. Consequently, he may not be worshiped in ways of mere human contrivance or proceeding from Satan's suggestions. Visible symbols of God and all other forms of worship not prescribed in the Holy Scripture are expressly forbidden. And then we come to the triune nature of worship. Religious worship is to be given to God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and to Him alone. It is not to be given to angels, saints, or any other creatures. Since man's fallen to sin, worship cannot be rendered to God without a what? Mediator. And the only acceptable mediation is that of who? Christ. Paragraph 3 then. Notice what God requires. All men to pray to Him. And to give thanks, this being one part of natural worship. But to render such prayer acceptable, several things are requisite or necessary. It must be made in the name of God's Son. It must be spirit-aided. And it must accord with the will of God. It must also be reverent, humble, fervent, and persevering. And linked with faith, love, and understanding. United prayer, when offered, must always be in a known language. Paragraph 4. Prayer is to be made for things lawful and for men of all sorts, now living or as yet unborn. But prayer is not to be made for the dead, for those who are known to be guilty of the sin unto death. You see how the writers, our statement of faith, is simply trying to summarize the Bible? Almost just taking 1 Timothy 2 and putting it in their own words. 
And so we confess this as a church, and we look to live this way as a church and to worship this way. So as Christians, let's, let's apply this. Let me ask a couple of questions, make a couple of suggestions. Christian, does your, your prayer life look like 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2? Again, I don't, I'm asking that as a fellow traveler. Right? If you're like me, you recognize a problem, don't you? Most of us have small prayer lives concerned basically about ourselves and our loved ones and maybe a few things that are happening, but verses 1 and 2 give us an expansive vision, doesn't it? All kinds of prayer for all kinds of people, and it's urgent, and it's of first importance. Well, how do we do this? How do, if, if we're not there yet, how do we do this? I need three suggestions. Number one, pray for your prayer life. Pray for your prayer life. I don't remember the first time I heard someone suggest that, but I just thought, dang, I've never done that. <laughs> that sounds like it'll help. <laughs> yeah, of all the things that we pray for in our spiritual lives, if we are strugglers in prayer, let's pray for our prayer lives, knowing that it pleases God. And so he's pleasing him, knowing he'd be happy to give us the grace we need to persevere in prayer. So when you go to your knees, just seek the Lord for help with your prayer life if you need it. So not only pray for your prayer life, number two, plan your prayer life. It's about the only quote I know from Friedrich Nietzsche, but he said, a, a man without a plan is not a man at all. And a Christian without a plan to pray, well, we're not much of Christians, are we? We're not praying. We're at our best in our needs. We take the, the true measure of ourselves really in prayer. And so plan your prayer life. Plan when you'll do it. Your morning routine, your midday routine, your nighttime routine. A plan where you will do it. Get you, like the woman in the war room, get you a closet, a literal closet if you have to. Take all the clothes out, put up your prayer requests, and, and sit in there on your chair and, and pray. Or maybe it's your breakfast table or breakfast, but, but dedicate a place somewhere to pray. Not only your time and where, but, but then organize what you'll pray for. Take the kind of categories you see in the Bible. Those in high position, those whom we want to see saved, right? Your, your own self and family, your workplace, and, uh, and, and just sort of organize the categories of your prayer life and, and fill in the particulars and, 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 and pray with, with that kind of plan in mind. And maybe you have a, a different kind of thing that you pray for each day. So, so maybe on Monday you pray for missionaries. And, and on, on Tuesdays you, you pray for truck drivers. I don't know, that's a T, right? Wednesday, you, you, you pray for weddings and marriages, and you get the point. Organize your prayer life. And, and my testimony is, is when I've been organized in prayer, I've prayed more effectively. I trust that'll be true of, of all of us. Pray for your prayer life. Plan your prayer life. Number three, participate with others in prayer. Christianity is a team sport. We, we love to try and play it as singles, right? But it's not meant to be lived that way. It's meant to be lived in the family of God, to draw encouragement from each other. So, so if you struggle to pray alone, that's fine. Pray with somebody. 
Make the Sunday morning gathering a, a, a priority. Because when we gather, one of the things we're going to give time to, extended time to, is prayer. Jahil led us in a prayer of confession. Jeremy came up later, and he had some more stuff to confess, so he confessed some more for us and, and then prayed in, in intercession and petition. Along the way, we felt moved to sing of prayer and then to pray again. We pray together, and we learn the language of prayer as we listen to each other and pray together. So pray for your prayer life, plan your prayer life, and find a way to pray with others. Just invite them out to coffee regularly, invite them to a small group for prayer. But let's pray and please our God. It's the heart of true worship. Which brings us to a second point in verses 8 to 10. Pleasing worship and pleasing prayer require pure hearts. And notice what Paul says there. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands together without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Many people come to verses 9 and 10 and all they can think about is whether women should wear makeup or jewelry or that kind of dress or that. They skip over what's said first to men and they fixate on what's allowed for women. Many Christians have just torn themselves apart with that spirit. The key to the verses, I think, is verse 9, the first word in verse 9. Likewise. Likewise joins together what Paul says in verse 8 with what Paul says in verses 9 and 10. It joins together what he says with men with what he goes on to say with women. And since verse 8 says nothing about clothing or jewelry or hairstyles, then the main point must be deeper than physical appearance. It's not that physical appearance is unimportant. We'll see that in a moment. But it must be after something deeper. Because likewise, he's addressing men and women about something in common. Well, what is that? What's deeper than physical appearance in worship? It's the heart, isn't it? This text tells us that the worship that pleases God is heart worship for both men and women in their respective ways. That there were not to be people who praise God with our lips, but our hearts are far from him. No, we're to be people who worship him in spirit and in truth, as John 4 said. What does that look like for men? Verse 8. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. When Paul says, I desire, it has the effect of a command. He's expecting this. He's expecting us brothers, the apostolic instruction to be obeyed here, brothers, is that we would in the assembly be leading in the praise of God in prayer. Lifting holy hands, stretching ourselves out to God demonstrably dependent upon God, demonstrably looking up to God. That we're to be leaders in that. Prayer is man's work. Forget about taking out the trash and changing the oil. It's some man's work. Pray. Pray faithfully and fervently. Now, I put it that way, not to exclude women. Because I think women are involved right here in this public assembly that's been addressed in chapter 2. But to point out the manliness of this activity. I think that's what Paul is doing when he says, lifting holy hands, notice, without anger or quarreling. But why did he zero in on anger and quarreling? Where did that come from? 
Well, isn't it the case that from the time we're little boys, we're told that to be a man, we got to be tough? And how do we translate toughness? It's a very physical thing, isn't it? it it's, it's, it's slap boxing with our big brothers. It's, it's wrestling with, with dad. It's, it's fighting when we have to fight. Don't let nobody choose you. Somebody call you out, you answer. Which is always instructing, and I think every culture instructing little boys and grown men that what it means to be a man in some ways is to have this sort of, this sort of always simmering anger that's always about to erupt or ready to be called upon in order to face some confrontation, some physical conflict. You know the alpha male games we play? We grow up being taught them, don't we? And unless our minds are renewed, we come into the church and we say things like, that's for women. Or we come into the church and, and we want a boss to join. We're quarrelsome. And we want our way and, and we seek to exert power. And all the time, unexamined, we're thinking that's what men do. Paul could write in 2 Timothy 2, 24, that the servant of the Lord must not be quarrelsome, but gentle. And here, that very idea has been expressed in prayer. You know how tough you have to be to be gentle? You know how manly you have to be to be gentle? Well, it's easy to always be raging and to be striking at folks, but to be taken advantage of and to respond kindly. To, to come toward weakness, not to conquer it, but to help it. To, to give yourself to others. Ah, that's strength. That's manly. That's Jesus. Sees us in all of our weakness, the Lord of the universe with all power in his hand, but he comes and dies for us. And Paul is saying it is the heart of manhood to have that expressed in the Christian worship service when men pray. This is, in that sense, man's work. But, but then he comes to women, right? He, he aims at the heart of men. He sees what's wrong with the thinking and the culture about manhood. And, and he does a very similar thing. Likewise, verses 9 and 10, he comes to women. And he's saying here that the essence of womanhood or femininity is not what girls are told to wear and how they're told to use their bodies in the worldly sense. It is not what you do with your body and how you use your body and what appearance you create that makes you a woman. And you don't present yourself to God as though you're trying to attract him the way you would attract a man at the club. That's what I think is at the heart of 9 and 10. What, what pleases some man is not what pleases God. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And ladies, you've been telling men this all the while. I want somebody to love me for my mind. <laughs> yeah. You've been telling us all the while. You just, that there are problems with beauty standards and clothing standards in the culture, but do you believe that? Do, do, do you believe the world has it wrong? The world's estimation of beauty is jacked up. That the world's emphasis on the physical and the sensual is, is actually not to see you as a woman, 
Do you believe that? Now, if you believe that, it's going to be expressed in the kinds of things that Paul now highlights for women to pursue, right? So notice what he says now. I'm going right for the heart when it says, women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women, notice, who profess godliness with good works. See the words used there, respectable, modesty, self-control. What is proper for women who profess godliness? In other words, if you profess to be a Christian, show it by the way you adorn yourself in public worship and in everyday life. And this doesn't mean you have to wear sackcloths. Right? This doesn't mean you, you have to be some kind of prude. It's possible to dress well and dress modestly. In fact, that's the same thing. To dress well is to dress modestly. It's possible to dress well and to dress in a self-respecting way. It's possible to locate your value not in your jewels, but in your God. And this is what Paul is calling for here. Real men and real women worship, and they do it from pure hearts. Notice our statement of faith again, paragraph 5. Let's read this together. And I want you to pay attention to the, the, the heart issues in this paragraph as we confess this together. Paragraph 5. The reading of the Scripture, the preaching and hearing of the Word of God, the instructing and admonishing of one another by means of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with heartfelt thankfulness to the Lord, the observance of baptism and the Lord's Supper, these are all parts of divine worship to be performed obediently, intelligently, faithfully, reverently, and with godly fear. Moreover, on special occasions, solemn humiliation, fastings, and thanksgivings ought to be observed in a holy and reverential manner. What's the issue there, right? It's how we do these things, isn't it? the preaching of the word, the singing of psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, everything that goes on when we gather, it ought to be reverent, holy, respectable. So let's apply this. Brothers, is there anything about the worship of God that seems to you incompatible with real manhood? If so, ask yourself if the worship act is in fact biblical. If it is, the problem's not with the worship act like prayer, but with your understanding of manhood. Adjust your understanding to embrace more of what Christ is in your worship of him. The leaders of our prayer meeting ought to be the men of the church because prayer is about as manly a thing as we can do. My sisters, is there anything in the worship of God that seems to you incompatible, contradictory, inconsistent with real womanhood? If so, ask yourself if the worship act is biblical. Search the scriptures. If it's what the scripture calls you to do, it is in fact not only consistent with womanhood, it's going to lie very much at the heart of what it means to be a true woman. So Paul spends a little bit more time detailing what ladies are wearing and 
and the hearts of ladies. So let me give just a little bit more application for our ladies. But brothers, you can pick these up too. Let me ask you a series of questions to think about maybe the rest of this Lord's Day or to think about in small group or something. Number one, when you think about your appearance, you should really ask yourself, is this modest? When you ask your husband or ask your girlfriend, how do I look in this? Be thinking, is this modest? <laughs> right? Does it reveal anything that should not be revealed? Does it entice anyone in ways only appropriate between a husband and a wife? Let me get a second set of questions. If not modest, and you want to wear it anyway, why do you want to wear it? What's happening in your heart that you would desire something that God would not be pleased with? That you would want to present yourself in a way that would be displeasing to God? Why do you want that thing? Number three, if God wants you to be modest, similar, it's a variation on the, that question. What, what goal are you seeking in immodesty? God wants your modesty for your holiness. But if brothers or sisters, we want something immodest, what goal are we seeking? What are, what are we after? Is, is there materialism at work there such that we desire expensive clothes? Wait, we got to have the Jimmy Choo's or, you know, we got to have the, the high-end suit. What, what's happening there? Is it materialism? Is it, is it attention-seeking? We, we want the flashy jewelry. We, we want the, the, the revealing attire because we want people to look at me. Hey, look at me. Look at me. Look at me, and you know, you know when you're calling to the world, look at me, look at me like that, they don't see you. They don't see you. It, it, it's, it's widely done in the culture of the Caribbean and the Cayman Islands where I was for eight years for, for men to wear their shirts low button. I don't know who told those brothers that look good. They wear their shirt low button and lots of jewelry, gold chains and stuff like that, and it was like some out of a bad mafia flick, right? You know, it's just, like, why are you doing that, man? Stop it. That's nasty. Um, <laughs> he's just crying, look at me. Look at me. And, 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 and the culture there, it's a sensual culture in so many respects. Even, even in the office places, plunging necklines and raised skirts. Look at me, look at me. But we know, don't we? We know that's not really who we want to be. And people who are drawn to that really don't see us. You know? What's the goal? Is it, is it worldliness, some worldly idea of being sexy? You, you know that as Christians, we retire that word, don't we? There's nothing about that word that's redemptive. There's nothing about that idea that's modest. There's nothing about that word that's Godward in public worship or public living. Do you want to be thought of as sexy? Is that why, brother, you wear that tight muscle shirt? Even though your arms look like mine, I mean, you know, you're trying, trying to flex, you know. 
Had all my muscles about right here. <laughs> What's going on? What's going on? And, and let me give you a final question, brothers and sisters. If, if someone approaches you about immodesty, how are you going to respond? That'll tell you a lot about your heart. Your response is anger and defensiveness, and I, want to, I wear what I want to wear. Last week, pastor preached on, pre, on freedom. <laughs> I, that's probably not the right heart response, is it? What's that person trying to do who, now I want to admit, there's some people who do it wrongly and some people who do it over some wrong issues. So I'm not saying everybody who comes to you and pulls your shirt tail is, is in fact doing it in a really helpful way, Okay. But on the main, as brothers and sisters in Christ, if someone comes to you and says, hey, look, let me, let me, let me bend your ear about something. And I just don't think, brother, that you should wear that up front. I just don't think, sister, that's, I just don't think you're getting the attention you're supposed to get, the kind of attention you want. And you clench your teeth, and you, I can't, the nerve of her, and I'm done with her. I don't know how it gets. It's real talk, right? Y'all know, know how I get. Okay, at that point, the moment you feel that, stop. Just stop and, and listen. You don't have to comment. And then go away and pray about your heart. Because the worship that pleases God comes from a pure heart. And ask the Lord to search your heart. And while he's searching your heart, put on more clothes. Just, just be safe about it, right? Don't, don't, don't just, I'm going to keep doing it until I figure out what I, no, no, no. Go ahead and be safe for all the rest of us. Just be safe. And then the Lord will bring you through, all right? Last point, last point. Pleasing worship, y'all been good this morning. Pleasing worship requires proper order. Verse 11 to 15. See, I should have stopped at verse 8, but, you know, we kept going. Verses 11 to 15. Pleasing worship, our public services, our life together as a church is meant to be ordered properly. God is not a God of confusion, but a God of order. And he's ordered his entire creation, including what happens when we gather to worship. So notice in verses 11, 15, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now let me give you a Bible reading tip before I unpack this. When you're reading your Bibles, or you're hearing the word preached and the reading of a passage of Scripture in, in, in a text, one of the things to ask yourself is, what do I feel about that? How am I feeling as I hear that read or as I read it in my quiet time? Why, why would you do that? Because we need to be aware that oftentimes we don't deal honestly with biblical texts because our feelings get in the way. And because we feel a particular way about something in God's Word that tempts us then to harden our hearts to God's Word, to want to reject parts of God's Word, and all of God's Word is for our good, even the hard parts especially the hard parts. And we, all of us, will have different parts that are hard to us. So what are you feeling when you read the Scripture? Knowing that your feeling isn't to be implicitly trusted, right? 
So, pleasing worship requires proper order. Three things here in terms of proper order. Number one, proper order in the worship of God's people, emphasizing teaching for everyone in the church. That's the implication of verse 11. When Paul says, let a woman learn quietly with submissiveness, many ears and many feelings go to quietly with submissiveness. But the true explosive part of this verse, of this sentence, is let a woman learn. Let a woman learn is the radical statement. Because in the rabbinic Judaism of Paul's day, women would never have been instructed in religious things. In in the Muslim world, in many parts of the Muslim world today, women would never be instructed in in education. Remember the Nobel Prize winner, Malaya? Yeah. Shot in the head by the Taliban because she dared to stand up and say, little girls ought to be taught. You realize that this is a great social justice issue of our day, the teaching of little girls, the instruction of little girls, the valuing of little girls, the preparation of little girls for life and godliness. The radical thing in this text is not that Paul says in quietness and submission, which this is a part of of order. The radical thing is he says, let a woman learn. And so proper order in God's church is teaching everyone involved. This comes not just from Paul, but by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Second thing, proper order emphasizes appropriate roles for men and women. What I hope you're feeling as we go through this text is the liberating power of Jesus. The gospel came into this society and changed how women were seen and treated. Christ liberates women, but he never liberates women in contradiction to his rule. The freedom we have in Christ is actually a slavery to Christ. And, and so Paul says, number, or yeah, the text says, number one, that order requires that we teach everyone. But number two, it emphasizes appropriate roles for men and women. So verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach. Or to have authority over man, she must remain silent. Here is God in the loving care and prerogatives that he has with his church, restricting the teaching office and leadership authority of the church to notice some qualified men. When you go on to chapter 3, you'll see the qualifications for an elder, qualifications for a teacher in the church. It's not even broadly Men can teach as men, but qualified God to handle the Scripture can teach. And the, and, the, and the segregation of duties here. Now, this is not in any way Paul being a chauvinist. He's not teaching some cultural bigotry. The arguments Paul gives in verses 13 or 14, they're not bound by culture and time. Notice verse 13 appeals to the creation order of Adam and Eve. The reason men are to have authority in the church and the home and women are to submit is because God made Adam first and Eve. The order of creation illustrates this structure in the church and the home. Verse 14 appeals to the problem really of satanic deception. It was not Adam that was deceived, but Eve. And again, Paul is not here blaming Eve for the fall alone. Because in Romans chapter 5, he lays this squarely at the feet of Adam. We're all sinners in Adam. This is not Paul playing 
so some mis misogynistic favorites here, some sexist favorites here. Now, this is just Paul going back to the Genesis account and understanding there the nature of deception when the order of the relationship in the home is reversed, right? This is for our good. What was destroyed in the fall in the right order of men and women in marriage and in the home and in the church, and the breaking of that order is restored in the gospel. When Christ redeems us and makes us new. That newness reflects the original creation. So Paul could say in Ephesians 4, we are being renewed in the image of God and in holiness and righteousness. And that has implications for how we deal with each other as men and women. And so proper worship emphasizes proper order. Last thing, proper worship emphasizes salvation. See there, there in verse 15, in the last verse of the chapter, yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. I mean, again, to our ears, Paul still sounds like this knuckle-dragging Neanderthal, doesn't he? You know, wanting women to be barefoot and pregnant. It's easy to import that to the text. But that's, that's not Paul at all. This is a difficult sentence to interpret. What does he mean by women will be saved through childbirth? Now, have you ever seen a woman deliver? You know that don't look nothing like salvation. <laughs> what in the world? <laughs> we had our first child. I said, baby, if you won't have no more, that's cool with me. <laughs> that's hard work right there, man. Hmm? And so, <laughs> I see, see some folks in here who know. Y'all talk, man. It's real talk, right? He doesn't mean that. And if he did mean that, well, that would be to falsify the gospel, wouldn't it? All of a sudden, women are being saved by their work, by childbirth. I think maybe the best understanding here is Paul is memory. He's just went back to Genesis, and he's just gone back to the fall. I think the best understanding here, grammatically and contextually, is he's still thinking about Eve, and he's still thinking about the promise given to Eve in Genesis chapter 3, that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. He would bruise his heel, but he would, he would crush the serpent's head, which is really the first gospels, the first time we get a peek into the gospel that will be unfolded over the rest of the scripture, that, that one born of a woman, born of a virgin. That's an interesting sort of phrase, seed of a woman, isn't it? Born of a virgin would come into the world, and coming into the world, he would defeat our enemies, death and sin and Satan. And Jesus did that when he came and went to the cross and was raised again from the grave. And so I came into the world. It's probably part of what Paul means back up in verse 7 when he says, um, or verse 6, the testimony given at the proper time. Christ has come into the world and he has saved sinners by defeating Satan. And that's the good news. And proper worship is centered on that. And again, I think he has the gospel in mind because notice what he says in that if clause. If they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. If they continue believing in Christ and living the life that goes along with that belief. Women, like men, will be saved through this Christ, this son, who's come into the world for that purpose. So what are we saying? We want to be a church family. 
that worships God in spirit and in truth. We want to be a church where men and women flourish in their praise of God. We want to be a church that lays emphasis not on what people wear and not on the traditions that folks have about what people wear, but lays emphasis on the heart and the attitude of heart that gives rise to all the things that God wants to cultivate in our lives, but that he won't cultivate by legalistic rules. This is why Paul says in Colossians 2, you got all these rules, don't taste, don't touch, so on and so forth, but they are useless for subduing the flesh. The gospel subdues the flesh. Love for Christ subdues the flesh. Prizing him above all things subdues the sinful nature. We want to be a church that lays emphasis in the right places, on the right things, to the right degree for the glory of God. We have to pray for that. And prayer has to be our first, most important, most urgent act of worship. When we gather, when we scatter, let's be the people of prayer for the glory of God. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, many of us are men and women who profess to worship you. And we want to do it more and more with the right heart, in submission to your word. And we know that in your goodness, you call us sometimes to hard things and sometimes to things that are contrary to our instinct, to our fallen selves. But the things you call us to are good. They are good. And they are good for us. And we pray, O oh Lord, that you would continue to remake us in your image and your likeness. And you continue to conform us to your Son, and you continue to allow us as a church to bear witness to your name. O oh Lord, in the use of our freedom properly and in obedience to your word, make us faithful and true, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.